0: Welcome to episode 255 of Destination Linux. Whether you're brand new to open source or a guru of sudo, this is the podcast for you. My name is Michael. I'm Jill. And I'm Ryan. Also, just off camera with us, hyped directly in from Jitsi, is our glorious community of fact checking, ego busting patrons. And on this week's episode of Destination Linux, we have a really special guest, an interview with the creator of Lutris, Mathieu Comedon. Then we're going to discuss KDE appealing to a wider audience. And plus we have our tips and tricks and software picks, all this and so much more coming up right now on Destination Linux. This week in our community feedback, we head to our discourse forums where I brought up a topic related to documentation. I asked the community which distro has the best documentation, and of course, there's going to be people who will mention ArchWiki. A, yes, oh, that. End that, of that. Story period. Yes. Let's move on. There were people. <laughs> done. I knew that that would happen. So I put a little bit of nuance on the question: which has the best technical documentation, and which Distro has the best user, like average user type of documentation, the getting started approach. Mm-hmm. So uh, you can automatically take the arch part out of the last section. What do you think is the best for the overall uh, getting started thing? So if you want to give your opinion on that, we'll have that linked in the in the this, the show notes. I I don't know why I couldn't remember the word show notes, Uh, but if you want to, we'll have links in the show notes for that.
1: I think it's interesting to hear some of the responses in the community. I mean, people gave some suggestions out there of of documentation they thought is well done. Fedora was one that was mentioned. Mm -hmm. People thought had user-friendly documentation, but the overall consensus is that documentation is one of the worst things about linux when even going across so even when you're saying these are the best it's the best of a really bad situation in linux and i have to agree i think you know i've i've committed changes to the arch wiki which always get changed back as michael jokes uh actually <laughs> yeah, does happen because like you make to a commitment too. to the arch wiki to simplify yeah. it, and then they go back and they change it or, or like, take what, it out. this It's too my stuff, simple
0: we gotta fix that simple. i
1: don't like this <laughs> Um, you know, so they, they have certain ways that they do their documentation. Arch has saved me in multiple distros, the wiki. It really has like, uh, whether I'm using Fedora or anything else, there are certain things mm-hmm. that it goes through and discusses or packages that you realize that you need to install to fix certain things. Sure. Uh, the Arch wiki has, it does really well. So I think it's a good example mm-hmm. of a very technical, like you said, documentation that's well organized, easy to search. It is not user-friendly though. And that's a very key point to one of the problems that we're seeing as new people are coming into Linux. We're going to talk about gaming later uh, with Lutris and things is that the documentation or understanding terminal commands or cutting and pasting these weird magical incantations is not natural for most people that grew up with computers and grew up using you know Windows 10. Uh, they are They're not used to those type of things. So with that, documentation becomes really important. Also accessibility. I've Also contributed to the accessibility documentation for Pop! OS. Um, As an example, accessibility is generally missing in a lot of distros' documentation. So, this is a big problem as well that needs to be looked at and overcome. But the great thing about Linux is all of these problems can be solved with the community. And this is something that everybody can contribute towards. You don't have to be a programmer, you don't have to go learn, uh, take, you know, hours and hours of classes and things to learn. You just need to start helping write and fix documentation that already exists out there. It's a really easy and powerful way that you can contribute back to some of these projects that you love out there. Hmm. But I think it's interesting that a lot of people in the community said, hey, this is one of the biggest problems Linux faces right now is the documentation.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, I think one of the standouts in the Ubuntu-verse is actually ubuntu Mate. Oh, uh, especially yeah. for new me- users, because it boots with a welcome menu with tutorials on getting started and how to use the OS. You know, and it has a link to access the forums and community and the software boutique. So they, I think, Ubuntu uh, Mate has nailed it.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think that, that that's a great example of of a of, uh, distribution having you know, putting a lot of effort into the user side of the documentation. And I do yeah. think it is it is still true that. Uh, like the overall ecosystem needs to do some work on documentation. But I, I love it when I see projects putting that effort in because it's such an important piece that is kind of overlooked um, you know it's it's kind of overlooked because you're not thinking about it in the terms of what well, you want to create the software and you want to make the software better so you're spending time for the documentation kind of takes away from that and i've seen sometimes projects do that for that reason but it is a very important thing because it makes it easier for people to get started when they see that there's a, a path that's explaining like the steps and things like that uh, but i do also want to say that yes Ryan, the Arch Wiki is useful. Mm -hmm. It is great technical (laughs) documentation. I'd also argue that Gentoo's documentation is very good too for the technical Mm -hmm. side. I found a lot of things in the Gentoo Wiki that the Arch Wiki didn't have. Whoa, 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 they can't. (laughs) 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 But there's a lot of great uh, options that are, you know, currently you could start to to, to contribute to those to make them better. And I think that that's a great point that uh, Jill said about the Ubuntu Mate. That's a great example that other distros should look at and say, like, how could they improve it, especially with the Welcome app, making it easy to Mm -hmm. get to that stuff. I think every distro should have a Welcome app.
2: Needs that. And and
0: set up documentation really easy to get access.
1: (laughs) You mentioned Ubuntu going in and and making a big um, case to, to make some changes and update their documentation. This is so important, especially for Ubuntu. And I'll tell you why. There are so many people who use it. And when you do, when you're searching for an issue with Ubuntu, what you come across is because so many people have used Ubuntu for so many years, Mm -hmm. is you come across, instead of documentation, you come across forums where people are posting answers. But now those forum answers are so old, old. from like 2009, 2006, and people don't look at the dates. They just search for something. They pick the first result that comes in Google or DuckDuckGo or whatever they're using, And they go in there and they start pasting these commands that are no longer valid at all or PPAs that don't exist or may not even be secure because the documentation is not the first thing to come up. And that's because nobody uses the documentation because it's terrible generally. So it's very important for distros, not only from the standpoint of making sure that uh, they're not answering unnecessary support questions all the time or getting hammered with tons of questions because it's in the documentation, you can point them there. Um, but also from a standpoint of people really having a terrible experience with their distro because instead of documentation, they're going to old community forums that are taking the president or taking the place mm-hmm. of that documentation right now.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think it's very important to give credit where credit is due. Like can, Ubuntu's had pretty bad documentation for a while because it's been out of date and they haven't put a lot of attention to it. But they uh, they did hire some uh, someone to go into and fix that documentation, which is good. Uh,
2: Especially since Ubuntu used to really, it it used to have the best documentation, you know, like, like going up to 10 years ago, it was, it it had one of the most robust uh, forums Mm -hmm. for documentation. So it makes sense. They just need to give it a lot of love and and bring it up to uh, modern, modern specs and, but also, I wanted to say for technical, besides Arch, which I love for technical as well, I like Debian. I, I still go to the Debian forums for technical, and also OpenSUSE. Yeah, so those are my other two favorites.
1: Absolutely. It's interesting that you brought up Ubuntu having some of the best documentation. And now, you know, mm-hmm. the, obviously there's some work needs to be done. There's a lot of work needs to be done on, on all distros. So this is definitely not yeah. picking on Ubuntu there. Yeah. Uh, but it shows the importance of keeping this stuff evergreen. Right. And that you can have fantastic documentation like the ArchWiki could be the greatest thing ever today. But four years from now, if nobody's maintaining it, it becomes completely worthless. So that mm-hmm. maintenance and, and staying involved in documentation is really important. I just want to highlight one more time that accessibility is one of the things I see missing in so many distros documentation. And if you do not have a separate accessibility section, well, you can go on to, for instance, PopOS has their stuff on Git you can go look at the accessibility for um, documentation that I contributed to them. And you could take that and use it for other distros as well because a lot of that accessibility stuff works in multiple distros. But each distro mm-hmm. should have that as their own section. Absolutely. But this is why uh, we love the community's engagement. Michael posted a question out there on the discourse forum. You all responded. It got us all talking and thinking about different ways that documentation is kind of impacting Linux and how important it is. So we love hearing from you. and What we want you to do is get your official in mug, fill it with some coffee or bubbly, sit down at your nearest stool, or if you're an adult, you don't have a stool, so you can sit on your chair and send us an email at comments at destinationlinux.org. <laughs> and of course, we have our discourse forum, which was what we highlighted today. So if you want to join in community discussions, then join the in community forum by going to dealinforum.com. This episode of Destination Linux is brought to you by DigitalOcean. Now's the perfect time to dive into DigitalOcean. Their new app platform service helps you build modern cloud native apps for way less money. With that platform, you could build, deploy, and scale apps and static websites faster and easier than ever before using a simple intuitive interface. Michael, I was messing around (laughs) with some other cloud providers that will not be named, shall not be named and their interface, when they talk about simple interface here with DigitalOcean, they're not kidding. Like, it is the most easy interface to navigate out of any of them out there. And when we talk about documentation, how about 5,000 cloud agnostic tutorials out (laughs) there that actually tell you, hey, if it's out of date, it'll have big words across it. Don't use this. This one's out of date. They just keep it there. Uh, But they always have the new one linked right there as well. So you can go to the newest documentation and make sure you're deploying The right things and making the right changes, which is just one of the many reasons I absolutely adore DigitalOcean. You simply point App Platform to your GitHub or GitLab repository, let it do all the heavy lifting, whether using Node.js, Python, Go, PHP, Ruby, static sites, Docker, and container images, which I've been messing with a lot lately. Absolutely love messing with container images. One-click installs in DigitalOcean. It's amazing. All of this built on top of DigitalOcean Kubernetes, providing a smoother migration path so you can control your infrastructure setup. As a Destination Linux listener and member of the DLN community, they're going to give you $100 to check out this interface, to check out the 5,000 cloud agnostic tutorials, to check out all of this amazing stuff that they're doing at DigitalOcean. You're going to get a $100 credit to play with by going to dio.co slash DLN. Go get your $100 credit right now. And we want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of Destination Linux.
0: This week we are excited to welcome Matthew Commodone, the founder of Lutris, the, to the Destination Linux podcast. But before we get started, it's a special day for Matthew. It is his birthday, so we were so happy to have him join us for it, celebrate it on the show. Happy birthday, Matthew. Happy birthday, man.
2: Aw, happy birthday, my dear friend. We
1: should have got a cake, Michael. Like <laughs> we should. <laughs> I mean, that I could eat and not share it with anybody because we're all far well, away. Well, as they from say, the other, cake is a still. lie. So maybe, maybe hey, not. Yeah.
2: Exactly. (laughs) Matthew knows that very well.
0: (laughs) I'm waiting for... Matthew, welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah, Happy to be here. So uh, I first started using Linux in the late 1990s, and you predate me a bit in terms of using Linux, and I would love to know more about your uh, journey leading up to the creation of Lutris. So how did you get started with using Linux?
3: Before I was on PC, I was uh, using uh, Namiga 500, so I was never like a, a big fan of uh Microsoft operating systems okay, whether it was MS-DOS or uh, Windows 3.11 mm-hmm. or it didn't have like the multimedia capabilities of uh, what the Amiga could do and I don't know it didn't feel like something I wanted to use so the first time I, I heard about Linux uh it caught my interest because I was looking for anything that wouldn't be uh, windows basically because at the time uh, in, so in 95 uh, Amiga was pretty much dead uh, Commodore was no longer existed they they wanted to to sell the brand like the Amiga brand to other companies that didn't work so well and uh, the magazines at the time that the Amiga magazines they would start talking about other operating systems so you would have like BIOS uh, and of course Linux so um a bit later I got this Linux book, my first Linux book from a uh, Amiga retailer and it came with uh, two Slackware CDs
1: Slackware again Woo-hoo, it's always yep. Slackware Slackware got so many people in the Linux it's crazy we always hear,
2: Yeah that.
3: <laughs> Yeah and at that time I didn't even know it was called Slackware it just had it was just written Linux on the cover of the book <laughs> it was no it wasn't written Slackware at any anywhere like uh i didn't know what the distribution was so uh, for me it was just linux that i was installing but yeah that was like the first experience and uh and i didn't use it full-time i did uh, like the usual like uh, battling the x 386 86 and like the crt refresh rates and yeah a lot of to this blow up your monitor uh, managed to run doom <laughs> uh, managed to run like some things like uh, f uh, fvwm ninety five or like other like simple window manager, but yeah, that was like simple experimentation and I mostly used Windows at the time. But then you would have those uh, those magazines that would have live CDs on the, in them, and that would keep me coming back to Linux.
1: Interesting. So you mentioned the fact that you didn't like Windows 3.11 and DOS, but then when you found the Slackware CD that you didn't know was Slackware, but just said Linux on it and you installed it, what was it about Linux that you did like in comparison to windows 3.11 or dos at the time what was it that kept your attention
3: i wouldn't say that there was something that caught my attention at the time i just started like, playing with it i also i mean i've never used like windows 3, oh you missed out uh except maybe it's cool like, <laughs> well yeah, i, no, I
2: don't didn't. think i've missed yeah. out
3: at all i mean I, I even to this day i mean
2: yeah (laughs) um
3: but yeah the first experience with the pc was windows 95 and and i didn't like i wasn't a fan of it but i mean that was where the the games were uh that was like how i first started using a pc and i would still like experiment with linux but the, the fact that it was so rough and so new and it didn't have all the software that windows had at the time like it was really a really a, a whole universe uh, different bit for what we have now like we have all the software now on linux but at the time it was really like the only the unix utilities and small window managers and all business all, all the time so, back then yeah and uh and, and i only had like one computer and a, a small hard drive so it would have like windows most of the time and linux would be like on live cds and one like once every few months i would try the, this new live cds and find out about gnome or find out about kitty and all of stuff so yeah that was like really the like the cool stuff I was, was discovering all the software and when i made the jump to being a full-time linux user then i didn't feel like so unfamiliar right.
1: So you kind of dabbled with the two. You You're using Windows 95 for gaming, and gaming became a big deal in your life because it's one of the things mm-hmm. we know you for. Uh, so I want to kind of talk <laughs> about that a little bit. You mm-hmm. founded Lutris in 2009. So take us back to 2009. What made you decide to start working on Lutris, and did you plan for Lutris to become this giant thing that it is today?
3: And I never expected like, gaming on, on Linux to be... As to become as good as it is today, I mean, this is pretty much like the the really top where, I mean, almost the top where I wish we want. We so that's very good. Uh, but back then, like in 2009, I, I was already using uh, Ubuntu for, I had been using Ubuntu for three years. And that was when I made the full switch to Linux when I erased uh, Windows from my drive and, and everything. So I had been a full-time Linux user for three years. And running games to work that wasn't easy. It involved like a lot of tutorials that wasn't weren't like always good quality. They uh, sometimes they were made for for uh, an old distribution or yeah, old old version of a game or whatever. I mean, it wasn't always easy to get something running. Uh, there were a lot of emulators or game engines that were only available as source. So you had mm-hmm. to go jump through all those, those hoops to, to get them compiled. Um, yeah, it was getting games games to run was took so much time that you would spend all this this time like configuring like the game instead of playing the game. So I wanted to have something that was like, okay, I want just to click a few buttons and, and be able to play the game. So that was what started that's what started me working on Lutris. And Back then, like in two thousand nine, like no one cared about uh, gaming on on Linux. Uh, like that's was just before uh, Humble Indie Bundle happened. Mm-hmm. So it had been like a few years since like, uh, like any big title shipped to Linux natively. Yeah, I mean that's we had like so few games. So I was like, mm-hmm. okay, since no one cares about Linux, then we might as well. Uh, try to to improve the the wine situation and get all all the open source engines that we can find and kind of put them together and assemble them and into some a uh, single platform that's easy to use. So that was like the beginning of um, of lutris. And at the time there was uh, play on Linux that already existed and was already quite popular. But the way it was written, like the architecture of the project, I wasn't a big fan of it. Uh, it was like a mixture of Python and Bash, and I wanted something that was just Python. Um, also, at the time, Canonical was pushing a lot for, for like Python development and also GTK development. So they were giving our courses on RRC and and all that kind of stuff. I mean that's something I, I miss a lot. And and yeah, so they they were providing this framework as well called Quickly, which made it possible to to develop some GTK apps with Python and really easily ship them like on launchpad and all this stuff. So that made the process easier for the creation of Lutris.
0: That's, that's really interesting. I, I wanted to ask you really quick about what you said, uh, cause you talked about the easy entrance of, you know, having been able to just quick, uh, click a button and have the game uh, because it was previously uh, very difficult. And I thought, it, I think it's just fascinating that you decided I want to do, I want this to exist so much that I'm willing to build something to make that happen for other people as well. And, uh, and you were talking about how, uh, you know, there wasn't really gaming at the time. People didn't care. Uh, there was uh, like, this is actually kind of a, an interesting point because at that period, while I would consider myself a gamer and before I switched to Linux, I would consider myself a gamer. I decided that I wanted to switch so much that I was okay with no gaming. That is, uh, that was how it was at the time because you really could only play like 10 to 20 games max. And now we're at a period where, the, you, almost everything you want to play is available, and Lutris makes it so easy to do that. So first, thank you for making it and doing it and going yes. through that process. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm
1: so glad it annoyed you so that you fixed it problem. <laughs> <Brava>. Yeah. <laughs> exactly.
2: And, you know, <laughs> Lutris really has changed the landscape for gaming on Linux. Oh, my
1: gosh. For hard.
2: not just playing new games, but for the emulated cl- classics. I mean, gaming on Linux wouldn't be where it is today if it wasn't for Lutris. And then, you know, Valve came along and had their Linux initiative. So <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. I think in a way you actually kind of inspired Valve to even get involved because prior to Lutris, there wasn't like, like there was Loki software years earlier. And then all of a sudden there was nothing for a few years.
3: Um, yeah. And also like the other way, well, I'll mention it later, but uh, but the way the Portal works is very, very similar to, to uh, how, how we've been uh, using Lutris. It's like uh, a lot of similarities between Proton and, 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 uh, mm. but I'll expand on that, uh, later on. Uh, but yeah, there's little doubt that Valve kind of um, took so, at least some ideas from Lutris for, to, uh, to, uh, make Steam play and Proton and all of stuff. Yes.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Matthew, I was going to make a point. I remember when, when No Man's Sky came out and it ran on Wine, but it wasn't that great and it wasn't really smooth. And Matthew actually made tweaks in Lutris and Wine to optimize it to better run on Linux, You know, making it a lot cleaner and a, a higher frames per second. And it made me so happy.
1: Lutris <laughs> has done this with a, a, a dozen so many or games. so games yeah. and it, it made such a difference with me, because when I was doing my Linux journey and I'm trying to show people, hey, this is a good platform, you can game on it and all this stuff. And I remember before I learned about Lutris sitting there trying to get Doom 2016 to run. And oh my gosh, trying to find the right wine engine and trying to install the missing drivers and figure out the error messages, or just installing Lutris and installing Doom and playing. Very big yeah. difference between those two <laughs> and experiences. And Lutris <laughs> just made things so much smoother. Across the board, for sure.
2: (laughs) Well, what's awesome is because I'm a close friend with Matthew, It's what's really cool is when there's games that weren't working on on Linux in uh, Wine or or Proton, I could ask Matthew (laughs) to get them to work for me (laughs) on Linux.
0: The
1: inside (laughs) scoop. (laughs) See, Michael, this works out for us because we're good friends with Jill, who's good friends with Matthew, and now we can get our stuff (laughs) sent through.
3: Jill, you know
1: yeah keep matthew so, busy yeah, well i don't
3: do i i don't patch wine a lot i mean I, I mostly ask people to patch wine for me so it will probably end up uh to going to uh glorious egg World, who does also proton or yeah i mean there's there's like a, a lot of people who work on the wine but there's like a wine tkg as well that's one that's a popular one i mean this everything that we can find that's like a patch for wine we'll try to integrate into our builds so that's why like uh, the compatibility is is higher than vanilla wine Mm
0: -hmm. yeah that's awesome yeah i
3: don't personally do the, the the patching of of wine yeah
2: yeah and speaking of that of uh Wine and uh, proton. Um, going back a little further, can can you explain Matthew how Lutris and its runner system works?
3: Sure. So uh, I was mentioning that the goal is to leverage every existing software that can run games and make them like easy to use. So that was like the run. The runners are a collection of software that w- we build and ship uh, as part of the Lutris projects. So. Like the most popular one is, is, uh, is going to be wine uh, with our patches and everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we also have a lot of emulators like dolphin, MAME, like as many emulators as we can ship. and also a lot of uh, game engines like uh, scum VM, uh, G- GZ, Doom, anything that can run several games and we try to to ship. And then like from these runners, they get downloaded by the Lutris clients from the lutris client then the user can add their game libraries so it can be gog humble bundle uh, steam so any game source they they add to the clients. and from the client they can install the games uh then use the the runners to 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 launch the games so yeah it's like several like pieces that are put together like through the the clients um, there's also something that's quite transparent from the user's per- perspective, but the, the games get installed with a, a script that can be edited and uh, and modified from the website, so it's completely open to anyone. In a lot of cases, it's not it's not useful to have one. Uh, Lutris can manage to install like a, a GOG game or a Steam game by itself without scripts, but if there's like anything special going on like during the game setup then some someone can go and and make a script so that's useful for say um a game where the the main game like the base one doesn't work anymore because it's like too old or something but there's a mod to to get the the game running so i was like for example i was uh, trying to play kingpin life of crime like an old fps that was for windows and for linux to be fair mm-hmm. uh so and, and i was trying to get it running and it would always uh it would always qu- crash but there there's a an up-to-date community mod for it and and thanks to those install scripts scripts it's very easy to to download the mod set it up in, in place of the the game executable so that's like the sort of thing that's lutris can do to uh to make the the life of gamers easier
1: and we kind of seen how impactful this can be where lutris takes care of some of that stuff on the back end or makes the instructions very clear if there's anything in additional with lutris you have to do to get a game Mm -hmm. running like with this linus videos and things where people see these terminal commands and they panic so to some of us veterans getting a game running and Mm -hmm. running some of these commands and doing some of these configs maybe it's not a big deal to us but to somebody who's not familiar with linux uh, getting in there and seeing, oh, you got to go into this config file and make all these tweaks, and then run these commands, and then add this stuff in, and then choose this one. It's just way too confusing, and that's where Lutris made such a big difference in my mind in, in simplifying getting those type of things running, so you could just play the game, which is what we all want to do. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Lutris makes it so easy to contribute as well. Like I, uh, for, for those who don't know, I have contributed to Lutris, sort of. And this is the thing that makes me really happy about the way that Lutris works and the community works because my contribution has been completely rewritten and made way better than what I did. So because I I added a game that was using an emulator and it was and I I did like the, you know, I added the script to make it run and set up the emulator and all that stuff. And then I went back like, I don't know, six months later to check to see if like there was any like uh, updates to see if there's anything that needed to be changed. And then I looked at it like, oh, so the only thing that's still here is the screenshots that I posted. That's fine because this is way better approach. (laughs) So that's one of the things I love about Luchas as well.
1: They'll take oh, your crap code it. and fix it.
0: Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly.
2: <laughs> Michael, what game was it?
0: Uh, GoldenEye for the N64. Oh. <laughs>
2: ah. Yeah. Nice.
0: This was a this was years ago. <laughs> but you were talking about a Proton earlier. And uh, you were talking about the differences, like how they're similar. And that, I was wondering if you can go more into detail about that. And also, how has uh, Proton itself affected Lutris? Like, has it helped it, maybe hindered it? What is the situation between uh, the differences between how Lutris works and in Proton?
3: So it's really similar on the, the, the hood because Proton is, is a, mostly a collection of software that's, uh, that's involving uh, a, so a patch version of Wine. Also DXVK, VKD23D, and F-Audio. So Proton is like a package with all of this. And all of this software is something with ships uh, in Lutris before before Proton was a thing. We can say that Lutris was Proton before Proton and uh, and in some way we had the, the steam integration which will, which we'll, will get rid of like soon, but we could like run, um, steam in wine. So that was like the very first iteration of, of Proton, like the very first prototype, let's say. But yeah, that's, that means that's the, the two are very close. So there's like not really, um, a big difference except that Proton uses also containers now which is like the reason why we had to stop supporting Proton in Lutris itself. So you have to, to use our wind builds instead of Proton, which are really close. But Proton uses a Pressure Vessel, which is based on Flatpak. And whereas we use something that's closer to the old Steam Runtime, actually it was at some point it was based on the old steam runtime and then we evolved onto uh, ubuntu bionic uh, but it's still the same system when we where we preload a set of libraries instead of having like real containers so at some point i would like to to also use pressure vessel to sort of unify all of this and just make uh, proton compatible with lutris again but yeah for now it's basically the same thing so it's it's just that Proton runs Steam games. Uh, Lutris runs like non-steam games, and that's the, the the big difference. So yeah, but the the important thing is that Proton exists. That Valve has put a lot of work into not only Proton but also Mesa, uh, Xorg, like all those Linux projects. And without this this work, we wouldn't be where we are today. So we are like really grateful. For for what they've do, they've done, and also the fact that they've kept everything open source, that means that's like everyone wanted to work and go onto the same like Linux gaming train. Then we could improve this situation, and it was like everyone involved could could help. And you know they could have made like everything proprietary and and not give back to the community, but they 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 have not done that. They kept everything open source. So yeah. M- Really, we're grateful for that.
0: Yeah, that's an awesome point. I mean, the fact that, you know, Valve and well, he worked on Proton with Co-Weavers to make it an open source project so that it could be beneficial to everyone is, is fantastic. But I, and I, and the, the work they're doing on the other stuff is really cool. And I think it's a great point that you mentioned, how that Lutris is great for the games that are not in Steam. And
1: you can integrate, you know, with Lutris, you can integrate GOG and all of these things into one, so it becomes a manager of all of your games as well, which is really nice. I love that fact. Uh, You mentioned, though, that Proton's doing something in these containers, and you guys are using kind of the original engines, and you plan to switch to their container system that they're using for Proton? Did I hear that correctly?
3: Yeah, I mean, I've experimented a little bit with Pressure Vessel, and if we can manage it, then yes, I would like to to switch to to this system. Uh, if it's worth it, I mean, I, I don't see it very complicated. If it's worth worth doing, then yeah, I would like to to be it like the the way of we go onward because our current runtime system has is has as its limitation. I mean, there's a reason also that uh, Valve has stopped using it and has switched to this uh, pressure vessel system. Yeah, it's still. No real plans. It's just that I've started experimenting with a uh, pressure vessel. I've started like seeing if I could run things in it, and I could. So uh, from there, I don't know. I, I'll I'll see uh, what happens. Like once the Steam Deck is released, maybe I'll have more time to to experiment on that front. It's not one of the priorities of the project, but it's still something that I would like to, to work on.
2: Yeah. So Matthew, on on the Lutris uh, website, you mentioned a focus on video game preservation. Um, For those who aren't aware, what is video game preservation and why is it such an important focus for Lutris? I mean, I know, but we got to let our audience know.
3: (laughs) Yeah. So for a lot of people, uh, Lutris Mm -hmm. is a way to to run Windows games, which wasn't the gold originally. So I wanted to to make this uh, t- this preservation aspect more prevalent, because that was like the original goal of the project was really to be able to run any game not not only Windows games, but really a- any game that's uh, you might have played during the course of your life. Then then I wanted it to be playable using lutris. And otherwise, mm-hmm. if it was only for Windows games, I would have just started contributing to play on Linux, which was a solution back then. But yeah, that was, that's only one, one of the platforms that I want to, to support. And, and before, because the, the computing platforms, they move so fast and they change so often, then we have games that are like not that old that are not con- now considered retro. So maybe that the goal of that is to, to keep your games longer on your machine so they don't age that, that fast. So by using any means we have, like, mods or open source engines or anything we can't find then we make the the games last longer that way you don't have to to have only a few selection of games on your machine but you can keep all your game collection that you've had throughout your life on on this machine using lutris so it's not only like PC games, but also your PlayStation games, also your Super Nintendo games. Also what I would like to do is make people more comfortable with the concept of emulation, because even if it's games that people have bought, then they're kind of like frisky to to get like ROMs off the internet and stuff. But I mean they have paid for the game. They they, they were here when when the game companies have released the game. And they were here to support the company. So I believe that they have the rights to to run the game today. Like the people who were who have bought the game at some point should still have the the right to, to play the game today. Absolutely. Even if you have to mm-hmm. download a copy of the internet or something.
0: Yeah. I mean that's a I think that's a very important piece because like if you could see in the background, I have some games consoles and some specific games that from old generations of stuff that like you really can't practically play right now because I'd have to get an adapter to be able to connect the consoles to my existing TVs or monitors because they don't support the connectors anymore. Uh, And having the, like the, the preservation aspect of, you know, involving emulators is very important to me because there are certain games like I was talking about with golden nine 64 that wouldn't be accessible to me at all right now. And I think it's very important because I, I still love that game.
1: Yeah. You had memories that you built with that game. I had a Mm. game like that. I think it was called laser squad. And it was a really old game that me and my cousin spent a summer playing. And I remember somebody had preserved it on the internet, uh, which I was so thankful for because I got to look at how terrible the game was. But back then it looked amazing to me. But how terrible it looks to me today but still have fun and kind of relive that. Because this is art and it's a part of our lives. And preserving these games and keeping them around is just as important as preserving any other type of art out there. And that's why I think the work that Lutris is doing and others... Uh, that are out there trying to preserve these games, making sure you can run them. is such an important thing because otherwise they're going to be lost. I mean, we might be able to find them in Jill's museum on a Mm -hmm. floppy or something like that, but (laughs) otherwise they'd be gone, you know? (laughs) So talking about consoles out there, the Steam Deck has a lot of Linux users really excited for the future of gaming and that this is going to bring a lot of attention to gaming on Linux. And with that, of course, a lot more users potentially as well. Are there plans to make sure there's compatibility with Lutris, or what are your thoughts overall on this device?
3: So I'm very excited as, as <laughs> well to, for the Steam Deck. the The device itself has a desktop mode, like the old SteamOS had all, as well. So I'm not too worried about uh, the regular version of Lutris running on, on it. But that said, it's like not the the most the easiest way to control it. So the plan is to have a full screen UI for. Like for the Steam Deck, but not only the Steam Deck. Also, like for for TVs or any device. This is something we've had plans. We had before the Steam Deck was announced. We wanted to have some kind of console-like interface that you can get a controller and and use it on like on a on a big screen. Uh, so yeah, now is like the perfect time to start working on that because the the Steam Deck is shipping soon. So uh, I would like to have something before. Uh, before the Steam Deck is available, there were like many options to to start building a, a a UI for for the Steam Deck, and the one that made the most sense was Godot. It's like an open source project, so that was a very important point for me. And also, it can do like full screen, it can do like control supports, and it seems like very easy to to get familiar with. It uses like a Godot script, which is very similar to to Python. It shouldn't be too hard. Uh, porting some of the code um, over to Godot. So it's not going to be a full port. I'm not going to port the the full UI. I mean, at least yet. I don't think so. At least there going to be a front-end in and, and Godot. Like a part of the back-end will be in Python still. So yeah, that, that's kind of the plan for, for the Steam Deck. Uh, meanwhile, I built a machine that is roughly equivalent to the, the specs of the Steam Deck and that's what I'm going to use uh, mm-hmm. Before the, the device ships. And this is something with the Ryzen um, 5, 5600G. So, no no GPU, and it runs like every game I've thrown at it, it runs the game great. So, even like Doom Eternal or Cyberpunk, all those games, nice. they, they run. I mean, not, not at high frame rates. So sometimes it's like 30 FPS, but it's still. It still runs like in any case.
1: Yeah, it's, it's amazing what the integrated graphics on Horizon can actually run these days. If if you've not had a chance to play with them, it, it blew me away. I had a, a, a little mini PC that I put one of those chips in, and every game I threw at it, you could play in a comfortable frame rate. Now you're gonna get 150 frames per second on a triple A game, but you're gonna have a playable 30 frames per second, which on a yeah. Steam Deck is what they're really shooting for there on a portable uh, kind of environment. Yeah. And I love you took the initiative to go out there and build a machine that's going to mimic like the steam deck so you can start getting lutris and everything geared towards that i think that's so awesome and shows so much you care about this project
3: yeah so i built like a first i call them consoles now because they they are like i treat them like game consoles they are computers that run that just run games and i have like my first Lutris console. I care so much about that I don't want to mess with it. It's like a production device so now it has my games on it and I don't want to to mess with it. So I bought this, this other machine that's Runs Manjaro KD, like Valve said we should be running for like Steam Deck, or it should be like the closest things to SIMOS to that we'll get. I can do anything on it. I can experiment and do really like really treat as a development device instead of uh, having like my production console that I can not mess with.
0: Uh, I think this is really awesome that you. I mean, especially with the idea of having them separate, so you have a specific device for the development thing. But I got to know what is the distro that runs the Lutris console that you made.
3: <laughs> so it's Pop OS because that's the the distro I use like on the most of my machines, and it's something that that uh, works for me. Nice. The other one runs Manjaro KDE, so I'd say that they both run equally well. Uh, one is running GNOME and the other Kitty. I mean, it doesn't make that much of a difference.
1: See, Michael, it doesn't make much of a difference. I I don't, I don't know. Maybe, for,
0: yeah, for him <laughs> to build his own computer for his. Yeah, okay, sure. But like, <laughs> that's the, that's a broad statement, Ryan. <laughs> yeah,
3: Kitty
1: and GNOME, no difference. You don't need it. Yeah.
0: Uh, but there are some people in our audience. I I, I can't. See, I don't understand why. But there are some people in our audience that don't care about gaming that much. Uh, and I, I do think that gaming is very important, and obviously we do, as uh, everybody here does. Do you think the growing gaming community on Linux is an important factor for the growth of Linux market share in general? And if so, why?
3: And I've always considered games to be like the most advanced thing that uh, a machine can do. I mean, it it pushes like all the limits of a machine. It has to do like real time graphics. It has to do audio, it has to treat all the inputs of the machine like really fast and be as low latency as possible. And sometimes in like a really heavy networked environment, like we have like hundreds of players at the same time. So this like really pushes like the machine to its, its uh, full extent. So if you can run games, then you can basically do everything else. So if we got that covered, then the rest is like almost easy like the the heavy uh, graphical applications and then that's that's i mean we already have, see that we already have like really good audio software really good like 3d software we just have like uh, new blender release i mean that's really good stuff that we're seeing on, on linux and it's like the, the the improvements we see in the video games they will also affect the other software so if we get improvements in like uh say kernel resp- responsiveness for video games that increases responsiveness for like the whole desktop and uh, the other apps as well so yeah i mean i, I think this mm-hmm. is like an important part of uh, and even like just market share it will attract users so it will make uh publishers more susceptible to write their software for linux like non-games even
1: yeah it's interesting because i've seen some claims out there you know we see comments and stuff sometimes on on our videos when we talk about gaming individuals don't care about gaming and it's cool not to care about gaming i mean if you if it's not for you it's not for you but i've also seen people act like it's not a a serious thing or, or that important um and or that it's for people who are kids or younger and things. And there are so many people I've run into in the gaming world who are from the professional world of lawyers and doctors and everything. Gaming's not just a young person thing anymore of all age groups and uh, all groups really entirely. And even a lot of famous people now who are well-known billionaires. So if you're like, well, games are a waste of time and nobody who's successful plays games, you got people like Elon Musk and Larry Page and Steven Spielberg and Richard Branson. We're all known gamers out there that love playing games and spend their time games and also very successful in their own worlds of things that they do. But also I point people to the fact of how big the gaming industry is Uh, I've mentioned this before, but I think it's a really important statistic that because it keeps growing. The last time we talked about the gaming industry and how much it's worth, it was that, and it really surprised a lot of people when I said this, is that it's actually bigger than the music industry and the movie industry combined, combined. Mm. So as much money as music and all the movies and blockbusters out there, which nobody looks at a movie, even though you're just sitting there doing nothing, considers it a waste of time, but somehow consider games a waste of time. Uh, it's bigger. Gaming is way bigger. But actually, gaming is four times bigger in revenue than movies now in 2020. It hit $159 billion, which is four times the size of the movie industry. And it's three times the size of the music industry, which is only worth $57 billion in 2020. So if you look at this, gaming on Linux, like you said, yes, it pushes the machine. It uses every ounce of power that a machine can and it pushes innovation because of that innovation that gets used Mm -hmm. to make movies innovation that gets used to make animations for rendering for all Mm -hmm. this other stuff that people 3d modeling all these other industries that aren't gaming actually benefit from what's happening in gaming and what the gaming industry is pushing so i guess i say that to say gaming is very important even if it's not something somebody who's listening particularly enjoys the importance of the industry and the importance of getting it on Linux cannot be understated in my mind.
3: There's stuff like Unreal Engine Five. That's not started. People haven't started using it in games, but it's used like in architecture. It's used like in engineering, Movie. uh, in movies. So, so yeah, it's it's like it. It was a game engine at the starts. And now it's it has like all these applications that are outside of games because the, the software is so powerful.
1: Yeah,
2: a lot of my animation students, um, I'm I'm, you know, teaching them animation, but also on game engines on Unity and Unreal because of that reason. Because the even the t- television and uh, film industry is moving to that.
0: So. Very cool. Also, yeah. for those who have a a. Like a overlap between gaming enthusiast and a movie enthusiast. Also, be sure mm-hmm. to put F in the comments for a rip rock blockbuster. Uh, just to let oh, them know, we miss
1: blockbuster. <laughs> you know.
0: Man, let's bring blockbuster. you said blockbusters, you said blockbusters, like oh, mm-hmm. blockbuster.
1: Oh Aww. man, I miss going there hunting for a movie and it not being in stock. I hate this digital world where I can watch whatever I want whenever I want. Well, I mean, we
0: could go into details, but we could probably leave this to the to another conversation. Yeah.
1: Yeah, we'll do that in the <laughs> a patron after show. But my next question actually comes from the community here, which is they want to know what your favorite game is.
3: Woohoo, Matthew.
2: <laughs>
1: and no pressure
0: to pick a favorite game of all games ever.
3: I mean, I don't have just one. Uh, I'd say that I like a lot of uh, the Metroidvania styles, like Super Metroid, like that's one of the, my favorite ones. But in the same style, I liked uh, Bloodstained a lot, uh that, re- that came out recently and also like the dooms a lot like the new doom like doom in general i like the, Darksiders I like series the dark series as dark well like the three three the three dark siders like the, they were really great half life uh, a lot of Qu- quakes as well like quake uh three quake champions unreal like the all the unreal tournaments like the a lot of the old old school FPS and a lot of the Metroidvania's as well. I'd say that those are the favorites.
2: Yeah, Matthew. So many in our community, you know, like to help open source projects that they they love. What kind of help is Lutris looking for right now?
3: We're going to have a lot of evolutions in the projects in the following month, so it's going to be very fast paced. Uh, I don't mm-hmm. know if. Um, anyone will be able to, to join like the project at that stage, but still I mean, we're always looking for uh, people like who can do like project management, that's a big thing, like people who can sort through uh, GitHub issues and and close them, like response to them, assign them a milestone and all of, of that stuff. Uh, that would be really useful. Uh, mm-hmm. People who can code with GTK, I mean, that's, I mean, I've could it with gtk for 10 years that doesn't mean I, I have no idea what i'm doing so if we had someone who had a clue about gtk that would be really nice uh, people who can do like web design front end development like javascript stuff that would be really cool i'm i'm working full time on lutris now that i've uh, finished my contracts uh, that i had with yahoo so now it's going to be lutris for until until march I think next year until uh, the Linux Expo at, in Pasadena scale, and so yeah, if you want to help uh, the project, start with uh, coming on our Discord. Just say what, ask like, what you can do, like tell us like your skills, uh, what you would like to do. I mean, we're always looking for people.
1: No, that's fantastic. So it sounds like you guys could Mm -hmm. use help in many different areas from project management, web design, actual coding and things, GTKs, but anything, anybody has some skill sets, they can go to Lutris Discord and hopefully be able to jump in there and help you guys out, which it's such a good project and a great learning opportunity as well. I hope a lot of people in our community take advantage of that. So to kind of leave it off, what are some exciting things coming to Lutris that we can look forward to? That you can tell us about today
3: so i've talked about the the full screen ui uh with godot uh but there's also a, a lot more that, that is uh planned for the the next few months uh, a lot of the features that we've planned um from the start are we should have them like coming soon like the origin integration uh with ubisoft with uh, battle nets nice HIO as well so all of those uh, stores would have their full integration into the lutris client, so you, it would be like a humble bundle or a GOG right now in in the, the lutris clients. Probably some kind of uh, save game in uh, sync, some uh, cloud sync uh, for games that don't have one, uh, or like GOG games as well because they they currently rely on GOG Galaxy, but we don't have that on Linux, so I'll I'll handle that with lutris. Or a game save for awesome. uh, emulators as well. There's going to be like, a lot of changes on the website to make it simpler to to contribute installers and scripts uh, to unclog like the the moderation cl- uh, queue because there's like a lot of uh, stuff that we haven't processed yet. I mean, there's there's going to be a lot. That's that's coming in the the next few months. Very
1: nice. Mm-hmm. Very yeah. exciting. That's awesome. That's awesome.
0: That's, and uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to all these things that you've talked about and uh, I'm, I'm so looking forward to trying out Lutris on the Steam Deck that's going to be fantastic too mm-hmm. and uh, Matthew thank you so much for bringing Lutris to the Linux community and we've had many people in our community tell us that they've tried to get some games working on Linux to almost give up right until they tried Lutris and then it just helped them with relative ease so it is very mm-hmm. important and we know that our community is a big fans of Lutris and, and gaming on Linux has never been better thanks to, in no small part to the work you're doing and the team at Lutris so uh, Matthew thanks again for joining us on the show today and we hope to have you back on the show to discuss all things Lutris in the future
3: you're welcome
1: awesome! you made it Matthew
0: you made it through the gauntlet of questions and survived
2: you did those were a lot
0: This episode of Destination Linux is brought to you by Bitwarden. Get started right now with your free account at bitwarden.com slash DLN. Bitwarden is an awesome piece of software. It is a password manager that allows you to have peace of mind knowing that your online accounts are secure. How does it do it? Well, Bitwarden provides you with tools to store all of your passwords in a secured vault, auto-generate those passwords for you, and even automatically fill in those passwords on login forms so you don't have to do any of this stuff. Plus, it also gives you access to your data across many different types of devices like your web browser, mobile applications, desktop application, and even on the command line. And Bitwarden seals and encrypts your private data with end-to-end encryption before it ever leaves your devices locally on your devices so you know you're the only person with access to your data. But if you do want to share your passwords, you can set up an organiz- organizational vault with your friends and families, or you can do it with uh, business accounts and do an organiz- organizational way to share those passwords because some people share those passwords in text messages don't do that. That's not a good idea. Absolutely check out Bitwarden so you can have a secure way to share passwords in between your friends, your family, or in a business. So go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started. And did I mention you can start it for free? Well, you can, but I think you also want to check out their premium account because for less than a dollar per month, that's right, less than a dollar per month gets you access to two step login with YubiKey, U2F Duo, Vault Health Reports, one gigabyte of encrypted file storage, Bitwarden, Bitwarden Authenticator for a temporary one time passwords, priority customer service, and so much more. So make the smart move like many of the community have and go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started. And thanks again to Bitwarden for sponsoring Destination Linux.
1: So this week in the news, I wanted to talk about an article that was posted by Nate Graham. And I knew this would get Michael's attention because it has to do with um, KDE. You think I'm bad talking about Arch. Just get Michael talking about KDE. Well, you'll see here in a second. Anyways, this article I thought was really interesting because it was a discussion about the users that KDE is targeting with its complexity He provides some really interesting statistics and information in here to kind of back up what he was saying. Um, Some of the studies that were done, for instance, independent studies, not done by KDE necessarily, but they found that out of 200,000 adults that were studying in this particular case, 25% of them could not use a computer at all. Now, as Linux geeks, Mm -hmm. this is hard for us to comprehend. (laughs) But I've come across this many times. I remember when I was doing a tutoring business for some of the elderly things and I had some really funny things happen, but they were funny only because I grew up with computers and they never had them. Like I would say, take your mouse and touch this cursor and they pick up the mouse and start putting it on the screen because that's literally what I was saying and they were following what I was saying. They've never used a computer in their life. They never needed to use a computer in their life. So the fact that 25% of adults can't use a computer at all, is surprising, but not as surprising to me as it would have been had I not had that experience. Um, Then the 14% could only do very basic tasks. Mm -hmm. So basically, if everything was all set up and logged in for them, they could, you know, double click an icon and launch some things. And the end result of all of this, there was a bunch of other statistics, but it ends up being about 40% of adults in rich countries. Rich countries here have practically no computer skills at all. So then Nate takes this, I think, quite brilliantly and makes the argument that KDE needs to lower its complexity, not to go after the brand new users. They're not switching the fact that KDE, one of the beautiful things about it is its high customization capability, but rather making sure that that kind of more advanced features are an option Within all of these settings, but not the first thing the user is presented with. And he kind of makes a joke in there that he'll leave the brand new users to GNOME and elementary, which those are perfect for. And they're not going after there, but more of kind of the intermediate, right? People who um, know how to, know what they want to get in, know how to use a computer, basically, know how to get in the stuff, but may not want to get into those advanced settings. They may avoid KDE altogether. And I know my first adventures into KDE you could end up changing stuff. And I remember having to reach out to Michael, like I changed something and there's this weird things on the screen and I don't know what they are. How do I change them back? Or how do I get rid of this thing on my screen? And Michael would tell me. So KDE can be overwhelming to somebody who's not utilized it before. Um, And he ends this by basically saying, essentially we need to fully embrace Plasma's model of simple by default, powerful when needed, all KDE software, not just Plasma. I thought this was really interesting and I wanted to get your take. You're a huge fan, Michael KDE. What did you think in this? Is you, were you worried like, Oh my gosh, this is going to ruin one of the things I love about KDE, all the customization. Or did you agree with what Nate was saying?
0: Well, I am a huge fan of KDE Plasma and KDE in general, as uh, Ryan has stated, uh, that, which is totally true. I am. So, in this topic, it's also very important for me. For those who don't know, uh, my non-podcaster's work stuff is as a designer, and part of that work is UX design. And UX design is something that I can't help but to think about when I'm interacting with software or systems or any of that stuff. So, this is partly why i customize so much because i want to make it as best as i th- feel like it can be uh, but also i think about what could be improved whenever i'm using well kind of anything so kde plasma as my desktop environment of choice it has been for also almost eight years now so with that much time yeah i have some thoughts of how <laughs> KDE could be better but no before i get to kidding. that you uh, there was a really cool thing about the blog post that uh, Nate talks about Vampire the Masquerade as a, a, a breakdown of the different type of skill levels, and I thought that was really interesting because as a side note, for those who watched a previous episode, we talked about uh, LARPing as a thing, and it, the I didn't think yeah. about <laughs> it until I saw this blog post, but that was the game that we were LARPing with, was Vampire the Masquerade. So awesome. I thought that was kind of interesting as well. Uh, but the way it breaks down is that it has zero to five dots and zero being you know having no experience whatsoever and then it goes up to a tier and they were and Nate's kind of talking about how the uh, one point user is someone who's like a point- and click user who just know like knows enough to do some basic stuff and that's it. And how they need to KDE needs to focus on that kind of, of tier. And I think it'd be good to have, you know, a consideration for the zero point user as well. But it also is kind of hard to do that because when you are talking about you have picking up the mouse and touching the mouse on the screen, you know, there that that's kind of difficult to, you know, have consideration for. But I still think it maybe in some ways think about it. But I'm not gonna go into like a pitch meeting or whatever about what changes I would make because you know, I left my diagrams and whiteboards in my other pants, but Darn what, it. <laughs> what I will say is I'm very happy to see this blog post being made. I was very, very happy because to me, the, you know, they have, a, there's a phrase called default is king essentially meaning whatever you have set up by default is going to be what people are expecting the system to do. Especially if those people are me, because I leave
1: everything at default.
0: (laughs) Yes, especially for Ryan. Yes. Which is his whole not changing anything is a little bit like, you know, uh, it it irks me a little bit when I go to his house and he's like, here, try this. Like, but why did you to change nothing uh, anyway? <laughs> so when I when I when I see these uh, things, I think about like how KDE is already awesome, but it could be the ultimate desktop of all of Linux in my opinion if it were to address the pain points of these one point level users. So you know what would I change? I guess like if I could snap my, snap my fingers and change only one thing, I think it would be okay. simplifying the system settings. Like, I, there's, yes. there's a lot of things that I would like to change, but I think the system settings being simplified is the most important. And I don't mean removing anything. I don't like not changing and like taking out stuff. I, I think that system settings is amazing and, and powerful and absolutely ideal for people like me to have so much control that we can customize whatever we want. But for the one point users, I think it mm-hmm. it can be overwhelming. So I'd split it up. Where you would first go to the system settings, you'd have a simple set of settings, just the the most basic things that are the most important for the average user to be able to control and change, and then have an advanced button. So when you click it, it shows, here's everything you can have now. And I think that would go a very long way to simplifying the process for the users who are getting started.
1: Yeah, there's another thing that's come up multiple times, Michael, with KDE, and I think it's a bigger issue. I know there's scripts and programs and stuff to fix it, but I know it has been a pain point for you as well is if you distro hop or you change computers or you upgrade and you have all of these customizations that I don't have to worry about because I use everything default. But in your case, all these <laughs> customizations that you've done and exporting and importing those settings in KDE is a pain. I think it still is quite a bit of pain because while it can be done, because I know there's going to be the comment, you can export it. It's like in files all over the place with KDE to get it all together and try to... Basically, export your settings and then be able to import them into a new install of KDE. Yeah, that's still a problem.
0: Yeah, unfortunately, that that, that that's I, I didn't put that on my list uh, necessarily as like the top thing because because I if I had to pick one thing, I think just simplifying the the entrance to the system settings is my thing that I would pick, but. The second thing would probably be to be importing and exporting of the settings. I think that would be amazing to have that. Now that you said that there is a way to do it, and there is, it is kind of convoluted because of how the like. It's really cool that all the files and configurations for uh, KDE is stored inside of your home folder, but it's also in a bunch of different folders and a bunch of different files. So it's really Mm -hmm. hard to know what you changed and where they would where they would be to save them. Uh, And there are some third party tools to like ConSave to be able to export those settings. and things like that. But if KDE were to have that, it would be a game changer to a lot of people. Now, I don't think this is necessarily a one point user thing, because I don't think a lot of people would have the need to change over. But I think it also could be, you know, it could be a one point user thing. For example, let's say a, a one point user puts plasma on their laptop, and then they they decide, I like this so much, I want to put it on my, another laptop, or I want to put it on my desktop. And then to have that same experience, they would have to duplicate a lot of the workflow, and it, it just wouldn't be the easiest of things. And uh, porting the settings from one computer to another would be a huge value for them. And also, it would be you know a huge value to everybody who uses Plasma and wants to put it on multiple things. Like, for example, I r- realize like, I can do it, but even then... I don't really want to, so it kind of holds me back from trying other distributions. It holds me back from moving it to other computers. Like my laptop Mm -hmm. is currently not running Plasma because of having to transition the workflow. Uh, What is it running, Michael? (laughs) (laughs) Huh? I couldn't hear you. You kind of broke up there. What is it? uh, uh, It's it's got GNOME on it.
1: (sighs) Oh, Oh, really? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Welcome. I'd like (laughs) to say welcome to the GNOME family.
0: Okay, it's got Fedora GNOME. Yes, um, that's true. (laughs) <laughs> well, now that you've called me out on it, it might be changing. Who knows? Who knows? Yeah,
1: there you go. Um,
0: <laughs> but yeah, it's currently running Gnome on the laptop, and it, That's it's cool. it's a nice it's a nice way of like one of the th- cool things about Gnome is that the out of the box experience is rather nice, and you don't have to change t- a ton. There are things that you I would change, of course, because I like customizing everything. Uh, but it is nice for people who don't like want to customize, such as Ryan. I can I can see why he would use. That stuff, but with, yeah. anyway, with all that said, I I I am super excited to see what comes from this blog post for KDE because I think it's already fantastic. And by addressing the one point users, I think this could make KDE Plasma the undisputed champion of the desktop. I think Aww.
1: you're not wrong there. I think it definitely yeah. could, Jill. What are your thoughts on this?
2: Um, I, to me, this is uh, this uh, article is is at the right moment. Because as yeah. we know, KDE is going to be the default for the Steam Deck. And that's going to be a lot of the first first users introduction to the Linux. Point. So this is very, very important. And this article to me, you know, definitely answers the age-old question with Linux, you know, just Linux in general. How far do we simplify the user experience to make it easier for new users? You know, that, yeah, that that that's something we need to work on and and make things easier for them, but have the power for us.
1: What's interesting is you look at something like Windows, and there are three different system setting control panel options within Windows that you may, to this day, (laughs) I will stumble upon randomly the wrong one that I don't, Uh the control panel that I really meant the other control panel that has the more (laughs) advanced things that I need to get into. So it's not like Windows has really done this well Mm. at all themselves. It's just people are used to it because they have to use it for school. They had to use it. Uh, for work. And so they're used to kind of dealing with that nonsense or having a sysadmin have to deal with it for them. Um, Mm -hmm. In KDE, there's so much customization and brilliance here. And I love the idea if they can somehow do that mixture that windows even never got right, which is have that simple layer and then have the advanced layer, but not have like eight layers to accomplish that. Right. It's just one or the other, your simple or your advanced Uh, kind of view there. But ultimately, Jill, I think you made a brilliant point about the Steam Deck and the KDE. And this Mm -hmm. is a really important point time for them to start making these changes. And I just love Nate's blog. If you Mm -hmm. haven't checked out Nate's blog, it's pointystick.com. And he always puts some really brilliant thoughts out there into the community and things. So just a huge shout out to him. I think it's also this. great
0: that he does the list week in KDE. So he's paying attention to what's happening, in KDE and letting people know about what's coming and that sort of stuff, which is fantastic because there's a lot of like a lot of inner workings and a lot of gears that makes KDE work. And that, 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 that even their applications are called KDE gears. I didn't do that on purpose, but that, anyway. So <laughs> that that's there's a lot of inner workings to make it all you know c- come together. And having Nate explain it to the people who are not able to like watch everything as it happens is so valuable. And I think that it'd be something that a lot of projects should consider to do as well, because it makes it easier for people to kind of see what's happening and get excited for those things. Also, it makes it easier for me to put it on shows. That's, you know, just a side note. <laughs>
1: That's true. Yeah,
0: just a side note. But I think that the Steam Deck point is a great example of, you know, people getting, you know, introduced to KDE in a, you know, st- uh, up way. And even those people might be zero point users or one point users, you know, that kind of thing. And they're more likely going to be a large quantity of those kinds of users because it's a kind of an introduction to Linux in, in that sense. So I think this is a fantastic thing that KDE has put out. There to you know talk about because Plasma is wonderful. I love Plasma, but the defaults you know, they could be better, they could be better, uh, even though I think that they are super powerful. And
1: that customization, though, is why Steam probably picked KDE, yeah, right? Because they're gonna want to make their own UI, they're gonna want to be able to move things where they want them to be to fit on this, this Steam Deck screen. And be able to manipulate in the way so it, it's customization is its greatest asset. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and uh, but again, like everybody's been saying here, this is cool that they're considering uh, making it even simpler as an introduction out there. Yep,
0: and also just to put it out there for those in KDE who are interested, as I mentioned, I'm a UX designer. If you'd like my
1: input, I would love to be participating in that. And you'll just know, uh, you'll be able to <laughs> find Michael's email, he's the one who's sent those recommendations to you a thousand times. A, week. a thousand so times, yes. Look I'm, for yes. one of those. Emails and
0: reply uh, back, and also hundreds of comments. Absolutely, I, I've 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 never stopped talking about plasma as soon as I started using it. So you probably
2: you could probably find me, you
0: know, in places. Yeah, yes.
2: Places. <laughs> and speaking of Michael Larping,
1: <laughs> oh mm. wow, there's more about Michael. It's like a Michael episode. <laughs> mm.
2: So Michael has long dreamed of being a dinosaur. Yes, of course that's I really? have. <laughs> A dinosaur. He often can be seen. <laughs> Weekends, live action role playing or LARPing, dressed up as a raptor in the
1: really searching no, for other remotely.
2: dinosaur cosplayers.
1: You know, Jill, this is fascinating. I never knew this. I've been friends with Michael for a long time. I didn't know he did this on the weekends. Me neither. from me, yeah. but I'm i glad I didn't know somebody. it. Either. That's interesting. He, he
2: does it in his sleep without
0: knowing.
1: It. Ah, that's what. That's what it is. That's what it is. <laughs> so you've long dreamed of being a raptor, Michael. That's Apparently.
0: A, bear, bear? <laughs> a T-Rex, maybe. <laughs>
2: dear. So this, the good news is that this week's game will allow him to partake in his dino dreams in yes! a more private setting, <laughs> laughing out loud. <laughs> so the game this week is called Raptor Territory. Yes, nice. Raptor Territory. It, it is an early access indie game that describes itself on Steam like this. Raptor Territory is a strategic PvP action game that allows you to take control of a Deinonychus and engage yourself in multiple game modes full of fun and excitement. Collaborate with other players to capture the world map and be- beware of your enemies' surroundings, uh, surrounding you to become an obstacle in your quest.
1: Very nice. Uh There you go, Michael. You can finally live
0: your dreams out. Wait. Now I need to connect it to like a motion control capture thing so I
1: can do this. And Yeah. Yeah. Look how how good he is. Uh, You guys got to watch the video version of Destination Links if you just listen to the podcast because Michael's raptor impersonation.
0: I think it's spot on. Very good.
2: Off the chain. I'm impressed. I'm impressed. Good job, Michael. (laughs) So what's really cool is Raptor Territory has six really fun game modes. Uh, one I've played is rescue the baby Deinonychus, who has been spawned into this spooky world. You know, carry it through, thrive, and survive. And it's also got lots of really cool team modes. And one of which is you can get up to 52 players divided into four teams. And be the undisputed conqueror of the nests by destroying the nests of the rival teams.
0: Oh yeah! Nice. <laughs> Multiplayer dinosaur LARPing, awesome.
2: Yes. <laughs> or in Michael's case, you can eat as much as you can, beat the other team in this festive meal competition. <laughs> the team that, that, sounds that eats the most delicious. wins the glory. <laughs>
1: you know if you've ever met michael in person you would know why this is so fitting for him because he eats like eight sandwiches at a time like most human beings make a sandwich not michael there's like eight of them it's not that much but it is a little bit it's like
2: dinosaurs he eats one big meal a day that much i know
1: i didn't think about that he was larping the whole time he was eating at my place i get it all right (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> <laughs> and another team mode is you can engage in multiplayer battle mode w- for a team death match. And that mm, sounds like cool. a lot of fun. Yeah. And there's also the capture the map, which is like capture the flag, but you capture your opponent's nests instead.
1: This game looks like a lot of fun, honestly. All joking it, aside, yeah. like this, this would be fun to go in there and do some battling as a dinosaur. Uh, I could also see my kids totally loving this idea right to go be a raptor and and destroy things in there and it looks really well done it's an early access game so people need to be mindful Mm -hmm. of that you're probably gonna have bugs and different things of that as they're working through it that's the point of the early access game but you know this looks like it's gonna be a cool fun game to play out there when it's released finally
2: definitely and uh, like ryan was saying make sure to report your bugs and give the developers feedback to help them improve it and this will let the developers know the power of our awesome Linux community. <laughs> yeah.
1: We do Most do the best definitely. bug reports out there. Yes, that has been
2: confirmed sure
0: many times. Absolutely, yeah.
2: And Raptor Territory right now is ten percent off at ten dollars and seventy nine cents on Steam till December seventh.
1: <laughs> so, did you enjoy the game, Jill? When you were playing?
2: I did. I actually. Honestly, liked it some in some ways better than Ark Survival Evolved, and that's saying. Wow, lot, I mm-hmm. like Ark,
1: yeah. <laughs> just yeah. because
2: of all the different modes, and that you can, you know, it also has a free roaming mode, which I really like, and it's good in single player with teams. It's it's just been really fifty two really players
1: on a map. Uh, that's like Call of Duty with Raptors. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. What's well, not right. to love here? You know. <laughs> So in the software spotlight this
0: week, there is an open source privacy focused messaging app that's gaining popularity in in our discourse forums. And this app is called Session. When it comes to private messaging, people may, may turn to Signal. It's very often the one that's described. But one of the downsides of Signal is that the accounts are tied to your phone number. Now, in some cases, like with friends and family, this is totally fine. But in other cases, like on a broader scale, this can be very, very limiting in the structure of the application. So instead, you could check out session, which uses, uh, it. it use, instead of using a phone number, it uses a session ID, which is why it's called session. Along with a recovery phrase, when you want to restore it on a different computer or add a new device and that sort of thing. And the infrastructure of Session is also pretty interesting. It's quite different as, as well in the way that it uses Tor to get your messages and to uh, to get them to your destinations. It uses the uh, like an onion structure and they call it the onion requests. So unrequ- onion requests protect user privacy by ensuring that no single user ever knows a message's origin or destination, which I find very, very interesting. So if you want to check this application out, you will have links in the show notes.
1: I love that they're using some of Onion here. And I I just want to give a shout out to Tor out there is looking for users to voluntarily help them with bridges. They need Mm -hmm. more bridges built out there for Tor and things. But uh, I like the idea, too, of not being tied to my phone number in here. And one of the folks that I work with with some of the videos I've been doing on my channel lately actually um, in the InfoSec world introduced me to this tool session here as an alternative to play with. I want to mention that it is very very early stage. So they are still working things out. Like in some of our testing, there was a situation in which the messages were delayed or those type of things. Mm -hmm. Although it seemed to have gotten much better. This was over a month or so ago. They're constantly improving it. Uh, But this is something that I think is really cool to go out there and support. Frankly, any tool out there uh, that you can get your hands on that's kind of focused on this privacy and security is really important also, I did a video on DuckDuckGo. They have their new app tracking tool out. Mm-hmm. And after I did the video, they actually sent me the beta key to get into this. And I mentioned this only because I was shocked when I turned this on how many applications and things trackers were going. I'm talking in the hundreds mm. were going off on my device within a few hours of having this in that it was blocking uh, wow. from things like apps that I had forgotten were even pre-installed on the phone, like Google news and stuff like that. Um, So I just say this to say all of these tools like session and things, definitely go out there and check those out. And they're very important to the community that we find things like this that are not in the mainstream that really help with the privacy issues that are going on with your phones and your apps. And also people who are reporters or whistleblowers or those type of things require something like this that could keep their information secure and safe. And it's why it's so important to have tools being developed like session out there. Absolutely. All right. In our tip of the week this week, this is one that actually we gave to our patrons early because we needed to help Michael with something that was going on with his hardware last week. So it actually became very useful last week and hopefully will become useful in your troubleshooting as well. Uh, so the tool that I want to talk about or the command is called DMI Decode. And so that's D E C O D E, or also as it's known as Desktop Management Interface Table Decoder out there. Now, the DMI Decode may need to be installed on your system before you can use it, so it may not be automatically installed with your particular distro. However, this tool is very powerful for when users need information on their systems. Hardware, such as your processor, your RAM, DIMMs, BIOS detail, memory, serial numbers those type of things. And that was the particular issue that we are working on with Michael is we wanted to see is his RAM operating at the actual speeds without having to reboot and go into the BIOS and things that it was advertised for. And we were actually able to find a problem going on with the memory utilizing this, and Michael also had the advantage of running this and then getting new memory. So mm-hmm. that's always an advantage. Yeah, so if so-
0: you're wondering was <laughs> running at an optimal speed, no. Not even close. Uh, It was
1: running at like DDR3 level speed. So there were some issues with the memory there. But that's why this is such a cool command. So you do a sudo and then space dmide code and then type, and then space memory. And boom, you will have information on your memory. So you could do that right now. Of course, we'll have it in the show notes to check out. And there are other flags as well that you can use with this. This is a powerful one to keep in your toolbox. Absolutely.
2: Uh, absolutely. Yeah, Ryan and Michael, every time I set up a new uh, rig, I always run DMI decode to make sure sure all my system timings are correct with my RAM and and uh, speed is correct. So it's nice. a very yeah. important tool.
0: Yeah, I, 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 I learned the hard way that it's important to know this tool when I had no <laughs> idea if there, he was like, hey, what was your RAM running at? Uh, 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 it's running. I could tell you that.
1: <laughs> right. It didn't <laughs> that's, crash. So that's about
0: worked. all I could tell you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, and yeah. It's, it's very useful. And uh, yeah, uh, and I got some new uh, RAM. to, And it, it is also, I confirmed it with DMID code that it is running at a more optimal uh, res, uh, speed.
1: Look at and that. And that's, uh, yeah. That's <laughs> awesome. So after you're done running that command, we also have some events for you to put down on mm-hmm. your calendar. So starting at 9 a.m. Eastern on December 13th, 2021, going to 9 a.m. December 14th. So that's 24 hours, if you notice there. So starting at 9 a.m. on December 13th, running till 9 a.m. on December 14th, our very own Matt from DLN Extend and Gamesphere is going to do a 24-hour gaming stream for charity. So for 24 hours, Matt will be raising money for St. Jude Children's Hospital There are also rumors that certain hosts, like from uh, Jill may show up, Michael may show up, I may show up, Nate may show up. Random people and hosts from across the network are going to be showing up on this charity stream and michael for the children has committed to doing the superman live on stream Woo-hoo! using his stool so that alone is worth hundreds of dollars of donations <laughs> i didn't to the actually children. commit however thank you so much michael for committing for the children uh, to do the superman on a stool
0: it is for Aww. charity so i will consider it more uh, more willing to consider it how about that <laughs> michael so is
2: michael so will tall Will that live. be possible
1: we don't know. We're allowed to zoom, zoom to the camera in just, out just to, to see him you. crash yeah. into the floor. I don't even think you can do the Superman on a stool, but don't tell him that. We just want to see the blooper reel from it.
0: I got a good balance. I might just maybe yeah, maybe it's a challenge now. Maybe I will do it just because you I challenged challenge
1: me. Challenge you. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh but this is a really awesome event. Uh Matt's gonna be doing lots of gaming and things on there. So if you've never been into games and you want to learn after this uh After this podcast talking about games and Lutris and all that, and you want to get into games, you can watch Matt stream, see some of the games that he's playing out there, and you can head to our discourse forums for more information and make sure you're there to help encourage him through this. Also, we've got Scale coming up. Scale is having its 19th annual Southern California Linux Expo taking place on March 3rd through the 6th at Pasadena, California. There's rumors Jill will be there. I don't think he will be doing Superman, but you'll be there.
2: Oh yeah, every year. Honestly, scale is really my my home and my Linux family. And to oh. me it really is. It is the best weekend of the year. And I'm not just saying that. It truly is it's it's my Linux family, my the the best event of the year. And if it wasn't for scale, I wouldn't be here on Destination Linux. So mm. it's really important to me.
1: <laughs> well, no, now we scale even more. Yeah. Now it's important uh, to us anymore. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
2: yeah. And um, I run the Linux Chicks LA booth. And the last few years, Matthew has had a Lutris booth of, you know, I, I actually helped him a little bit get that Lutris booth. But.
1: <laughs> nice. So you get a Lutris booth over there at scale. You can see Jill yeah. as well. That's all <laughs> making it worth attending by itself. Uh, there are three ways. You can volunteer if you're interested in helping out scale. You can attend, of course, as regular regular attendee and just register for it. Or present, so there are still opportunities. At least last I checked, there was open still for presenters. So if you want to present there at scale, you can as well. But the fact that Jill's going to be there makes it worth it. Yeah, that's an, that's enough reason to go right there. I'm
2: always there. In fact, this is my scale hat.
1: <laughs> oh, you so got your own hat. That yeah. is too cute, Jill. That is too <laughs> this cute. is
2: every every year yeah. at scale. I wear this hat. <laughs> nice. That
1: is awesome. I love it. Well, a big thank you to each and every one of you for supporting us by watching or listening to Destination Linux, however you do it. We love your faces. We're here every Sunday, by the way, at 1 p.m. Eastern, live at DLNLive.com. The best part, everyone is invited to watch the recording of Destination Linux each and every week, and we can't wait to see you in the chat. And we also have our glorious patrons, which get perks like unedited versions of the show and get to hang out in the patron after show, which is a 60,000 square foot virtual stadium. And, Michael, I have introduced some amazing technology to our patrons. Not only do they mm-hmm. get piped in, so there's no delay. You know, on YouTube and all that other stuff, they true, have to wait for seconds delay. Mm-hmm. I found a way to also pipe video to them as well, so they get to oh, watch fancy. it without delay. I know. It's unbelievable. Woo-hoo. It's never been better to game on Linux. It's never been able to better to be a patron on Destination Linux. That's what I hear.
0: Anyway, I think I think that's a fantastic thing. And there's so many great perks. So definitely go check it out and become a patron so you can get all of those perks and join us also in the patron post show that happens every week after the show. And if you want to support the channel and the show as well, we have things like thedealinstore.com where you can pick up some awesome Arch. swag. We have t-shirts, hoodies, mugs, stickers, backpacks, and so much cool stuff. Check it out at dealinstore.com.
2: And make sure to check out all the amazing shows here on the Destination Linux Network. We have the Pseudo Show, the This Week in Linux, the DOS Geek Channel, DLinux Ten, Hardware Addicts, GameSphere, and the Fedora Podcast. And everyone head to DestinationLinux.network and subscribe to all these great shows. And please don't forget to leave a rating on your favorite app so others can discover the power of open source to keep those penguins marching and the full Monty of Linux and open source awesome sauce.
0: Everybody have a great week, and remember that the journey itself is just as important as the destination. Thanks, everyone. See you next week. Woo-hoo. We did
1: it. Yay, woo-hoo! Oh. oh, that was heavier than I thought. <laughs> <laughs> uh
0: outtake. <I'll> take. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> we need one of these hats that Jill has, Michael. And oh, this, store this right one right was custom oh, yeah.
2: made, so to and it looks like Tex. <laughs>
1: We're gonna have so to try to figure out adorable. how to get
0: that in the in the store for sure.
1: I heard you were going as a raptor. I heard you yeah. stepped up the <laughs> scale as a yeah, raptor.
2: Yeah, to get one of the, They have those T Rex blow up costumes. We'll have to get yeah. a raptor one.
1: I've learned so many things about you on the show. Mm, me too.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know I did that either, and it, it sounds fun. You know. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs>